Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. Uh, Philippians chapter 4. If anybody needs a Bible, uh, you can raise your hand and we'll make sure you get one. Philippians chapter 4. So we're rounding third base, man, in, in the book of Philippians. And we're coming uh, to a close. We have maybe about three weeks left in the book of uh, Philippians. And then we're going to go to the book of Colossians. So we're just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. That's how we teach. We think that's the best, most effective way to, to disciple people is to teach the Word of God verse by verse, uh, you know, chapter by chapter, book by book. Uh, that way, uh, you guys get to hear the whole counsel of God, and it's so important that you know the whole counsel of God and not just different parts of the Bible, that you have a good understanding of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And uh, uh, you, you can also, by the way, you can make that journey on your own. You can start in Genesis, and you just start reading through, and God will put the pieces of the puzzle all together for you um, as you're reading you know, you might be confused um, on some things, but God will put it all together for you. So get in the Word of God, man. It, it will change your life. But we're in the book of Philippians, and Philippians has been a great study because it reminds us about the attitude in which we're to have in the Christian faith. What is the attitude in which we're to have in the Christian faith? What is this book all about? little three-letter word. Anybody tell me? It's about joy. That's right. It's about joy. That's why we called it the Joyful Life Series, and uh, it's the mantra of uh, the book of Philippians. The concept of joy actually comes out 16 times in these four chapters. Paul, who is detained in under house arrest as he writes that this letter to this church, he, um, he's encouraging these believers to have joy no matter what, and he's in prison. So, you know, he's a guy that can speak on this topic. And uh, he wants us to understand that we can have gladness in the Lord regardless of our circumstances. That's what joy is. Gladness uh, regardless of circumstances. It, and the reason why we can have joy, the, the entire reason that we can is because when we understand that God is sovereign, what does that mean? That means God is in control of everything. So when we, when we have this concept, uh, when we have the correct understanding of this concept, because you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about the sovereignty of God as well. But, but here's the thing is, the sovereignty of God and the will of man, you know, the, the, they, all, they, work, they work together, but God is sovereign, which means that he's in control of everything. But he also lets you do whatever you want. Does that make sense? So it absolutely is hard to understand, but that is the truth. But here's the thing, when we understand that God is sovereign, then we look at our circumstances differently. Because we understand that God is allowing something. He doesn't necessarily orchestrate every situation, and that's, that's kind of the misnomer about the sovereignty of God is that if he's in control, then, then he's the one that's, you know, doing all this evil in the world. No, he's not. God cannot tempt you, by the way. He can test you, but he will not tempt you. There's lots of things that God will not do in his sovereignty, and uh, he will not produce evil. He will use evil but he will not produce it. And so when we get this understanding, we have a proper, healthy understanding of the sovereignty of God, we look at our circumstances and go, well, God, you have me in this situation for a reason. 
you obviously are trying to teach me something. You want me to, to know you in a different way through this circumstance. Some of us don't like that. We don't like that God would put us in negative circumstances. But I would ask you this question. How is it that you grow? What is the best format for you to grow? Generally, I would say most of us would say, well, it usually comes in, in hard times. It usually comes in negative situations, right? When I have to choose to, to, to press on, to, to move forward, that's when I grow. And that's the reason God allows circumstances in our life because he wants us to grow. He wants us to become more like Jesus. Listen, uh, I don't care what it is in your life. You can apply this on the horizontal so easily. It doesn't matter if you want to get a better body, if you want to become a more successful person, if you want to be a better dad, if you want to be, uh, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, whatever the goal is, there's going to be pain involved. There's going to be sacrifice involved in it. As the same is true for the Christian walk. However, we can face it with joy because we know the goal at the end of the day. We know that God is, God's goal is to make us more like Jesus. And that's what the book of Philippians is about, and that's what Paul is trying to help us understand here. That regardless of what we might be going through today, that God is sovereign, he's in control, and he is me he's meaning for whatever it is that we find ourselves in, be it a medical diagnosis or a failed relationship or, or you know, maybe it's a wayward kid or a financial debacle, whatever the case is, that God's using it to grow me, to make me more like Jesus. Maybe he's using it to draw me to himself. Maybe he's using it to humble me. He's using it to make me more like Jesus. For some of us, it's a call to salvation. He's trying to help us understand that he exists and that he wants to be in right relationship with you. So that's what we're talking about here in the book of Philippians. Stand with me, and we're going to read uh, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 2. We've, we, we, we added verse 1 of chapter 4 to the very end of chapter 3 because it really kind of goes there. Remember, chapters and verses and divisions in the Bible were not there originally. That We inserted them to make it easier for us, but uh, this was a letter that was written to somebody, and so there's just a con it just continues on. So here's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Sintish to agree in the Lord. And by the way, there's a hundred different ways to say that name, so say it however you like. But <laughs> yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for, well, for lack of better terms, taking the time to write down these things for us. We thank you for giving us a manual for life and Emmanuel for life. We thank you, Lord, for your word and how it directs us and leads us, how it challenges us and corrects us, Lord. We thank you for the reminder this morning of how important unity is in the body of Christ. And Lord, we ask you to just speak into our lives today. And Lord, help us to, to, to hear from you regarding what it means to be a healthy 
Christian, a healthy church. Lord, we want to be that. And so we ask that your spirit come and speak into our lives and just uh, shape us, Lord. Encourage us, Lord. Admonish us to become more like Jesus. That's our prayer. We lift it up, Lord. We ask your Holy Spirit to come and teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know if you know this, but the church is in grave danger. The, the church is in grave danger, and we need to speak about that this morning. We need to have an understanding. But before I get into the specifics of that, I think it's important that we get on the same page about what I mean by the church. What does that term mean? The first time the word church is mentioned in the Bible, it's in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus describes what he came to build. So here's what it says, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. It'll be up on the screen for you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Greek word for church here is ekklesia, and it means assembly or called out ones. So Jesus, when he's speaking about the church, he's not speaking about a building. He's not speaking about an entity. He's speaking about an assembly. He's speaking about people. When he said, I'm going to build my church, he wasn't speaking about an entity. He was speaking about a body of believers that would follow him. That's what he means by the word church. And notice the personal pronoun. I will build your church, their church, no, my church. It's the personal pronoun that Jesus, Jesus says, this is mine. This is my church. And so we have to understand that because it's important that if Jesus is declaring the church his and that we get to be a part of it, it's a privilege to be part of the body, but we have to understand that we don't, get the, we don't have the right to change it. We don't have the right to redefine it. We don't have a right to reorganize it because it's not ours, it's his. And so... What we have to do then is we have to look to the scripture. We have to say, okay, what is church, the, the assembly, what is the, the, the called out ones as we come together, what is it supposed to look like? How are we supposed to come together? What, what is this going to look like? And there's no, you know, real formal, uh, you know, I guess blueprint except for Acts chapter 2 verse 42. And this is the foundation of really Calvary Chapel and what we believe the gathering should look like. We believe that the gathering of the body of Christ should be built upon four pillars, right? And here's what, here's what Acts 2.42 says. This is the early church, and it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so, you know, as it sits today, many churches, and I speak about gatherings, you know, different, different people who gather in different places, that's what I mean by church, they, they come together, but, but they have totally diverted from this really kind of model of what we're called to do when we gather together. So what we're called to do first and foremost is to be steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. That means the word of God. The apostles were the writers, Paul being primarily the writer of the New Testament, but 
The other apostles were writers of the New Testament. You know, you have Matthew, you have Mark, you have Luke, you have John, you have various other writers um, of, 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 the, of the, these New Testament passages. But many, many people, as they gather, they have not been steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, in, in the Word of God. They have broken off and, and they have uh, begun to teach, you know, more principles and, and, you know, things to, you know, make yourself better. And, um, you know, I'm not saying there's not a place for that, but as we gather as the church, the, the, there should be a very focused, you know, the Word of God should be at the centerpiece of what we're doing because Jesus is the Word. And so the Word of God should be what we're really, who cares what I think? And you don't want funny stories. You want to hear what God has to say to you. And so you, you need to be dedicated to teaching the Word of God. And unfortunately, that's, that's reason number one why the church is unhealthy today is because the Word of God is not being taught in, in lots of different places. Not in, not in all cases, but there's many churches that do, but there's a lot of churches that don't. Secondly, it, 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 notice the other, the, the other pillar, number two, was fellowship. That means that this body of believers in whatever town it was, you know, they would get together on a regular basis. So they would fellowship with each other. They would come together and they would share their lives with one another. And, you know, as life has gotten busier, that becomes harder, doesn't it? It becomes a lot more difficult to really get into people's lives and to have that fellowship. You know, but that is a foundation in what the church should be, folks. We should have tight-knit relationships with one another. We should be, as they did, going from house to house daily, meeting together. You know, as much as we can. I'm not saying that you have to do it daily. Some of us, we don't, we don't get together with Christians at any time other than this. And this really isn't an, an opportunity. It's really difficult to really fellowship in a situation like this where you have a bunch of people together, right? So it's important that, you know, we, we, we fellowship together, that we're in each other's lives. Thirdly, communion. What is communion? Some people define it differently. I'll just take the very simple approach. Communion is the reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, that his blood was shed, that his body was broken for you and I. Um. In many churches, they're not reminded of that at all, which is incredibly sad, right? It's the reason why we're here. <laughs> without the cross, without the blood, and without the body of Jesus Christ, and without the resurrection, I'll add, there'd be no point to us to get, for us to gather. Communion is not something that we should remember once a month when we have the elements before us, you know. It's something that we should remember daily. The, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, what he's done for us, to be reminded of that. Fourthly, notice, prayer. Do you know the, the, the least attended uh, function in any church is the prayer meeting? You know what that says, right? That says we don't really believe that God answers prayer unless we're in desperate need. Then we then we'll call on him. But, 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 but the thing is is, is, is prayer ought to be a foundation in our lives. And, and I don't say this to beat you up. I say this to uh, actually encourage you to, 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 to admonish the body 
Because without these four things, there's, it's impossible to be healthy. It's impossible to be healthy. We're gonna, you're going to be unhealthy if, if you're not committed to these things. And any church is going to be unhealthy if they're not committed to these things. The list goes on about how, how churches are unhealthy, though. And, and, and I'll, I'll spare you the details, but, you know, as you know, many people are embracing, you know, sinful behavior as saying God's cool with that or whatever. We have that going on. We have, um, you know, just a lack of commitment in general. There's lots of reasons why the church is unhealthy today. But thankfully, there is a remnant of believers. Some would call the tr- true church that are dedicated and that are following through and that are completely and totally, you know, on board with, uh, with, with what the Bible has to say about assembling together, what it means to be a Christian and all. Because, listen, it's not what our culture is portraying it as, folks. It's totally different than what our culture is. And, and I will say this, this setting right here is even really more, tra- more tradition than it is really biblical, right? It doesn't matter where we meet, you know, and that in this day, in, in, in biblical times, they met in houses. Man, I tried to plant a church in a house. You want to talk about weird. People drive to my driveway, and we would watch them go, whoa, whoop, and just turn around and leave because it's like, whoa, this is weird. It's in, a, it's in a house. So, you know, even this is a tradition more than anything, but, and it's okay to have those as long as you keep the foundation, the foundation. It does not matter where you meet. Uh, listen, there are churches that meet in bars on Sunday mornings. You know, they convert the bar into a church. Hey, praise God. Some Christians have a problem with that. I say, listen, we are the carriers or the glory of God into the world. So no matter where we go, we bring his glory. You know, so it's okay for us to do these things. But, but the, the foundation, the pillar, the teaching of the word of God, fellowship, the breaking of bread or communion and prayer, these are the things that we ought to be committed to. So, unfortunately, there are many unhealthy members in the body of Christ today. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus didn't come for the well. He came for the sick, right? And so that is the good news. Like, there's hope in no matter what's going on in the church today. And so the title of my message this morning is Marks of a Healthy Church. And when I say marks of a healthy church, what I really mean by that word church is really marks of a healthy Christian, That's really what I mean by church. So we're not going to talk about the entity. We're going to talk about individuals. Um, The church as an entity is only as healthy as its membership. You agree with that? The church as an entity is only as healthy as... If you want to be a healthy church, then you have to have healthy members. If you want to have a church that's vibrant and alive, you have to have members that are vibrant and alive, right? That reminds me of a story I heard about a a young pastor that was um, uh, going to, he, he was taking over this older congregation, and he, uh, he, he came into the church, and he was really encouraged, had all these ideas. He's like, look, let's do this to reach our community. Let's do this to reach our community. And he met with nothing but sour faces, right? These people did not want to grow. They didn't want to do anything. And so uh, the, the young pastor, after, you know, presenting idea after after idea and meeting opposition, said, man, how can I get their attention? So he took out an ad on a Saturday, just before Sunday morning, and, he, and, he, and, and it was titled this, My Church is Dead, Come to Our Funeral This Sunday Morning. <laughs> so you can imagine this sparked a lot of interest in the community. I'm like, whoa, a church is dead? 
I got to go see that, you know. People, <laughs> listen, this Sunday morning was packed. There was no room in the place. The community showed up in a big way to, to find out what it, what it looks like to have a dead church. And so it, it looked just like a funeral. The guy had it, you know, flowers everywhere. He had a casket up front. And, and the pastor, uh, you know, when it was 10 o'clock, he came out on the, the stage and he said, you know, I'm glad that you have all come this morning. We're here to remember this beloved church. And he goes on to, you know, do what, what normal funerals would do. He gave kind of a highlight reel of, of, the, of the church when it was planted, what it sort of accomplished and all these different things. And when he finished his eulogy, he removed the, the, the flowers from the casket. He set them off to the side. He opened the casket and he said, now I'd like to invite you to come down and pay your last respects to this dear church. So people very curious now to say what in the world is inside of that casket. And as they made them their way down and they gazed into the open casket, they found only a reflection of themselves. The pastor had put a mirror inside the casket and, and his point was very vivid and clear that it is the responsibility of the of the members of the body to keep the body healthy and to keep it vibrant because a church is only as healthy as its membership. That took some guts to do something like that, right? Don't know if that's a true story, but what an incredible picture. Listen, we have a responsibility as the body. Like, we're, we're not just showing up to show up. Like, we are, I don't know if you know this, uh, maybe this is a newsflash, but you're in the ministry. When you came to Christ... When you received Jesus Christ in your life, you said, hey, I'm going into full-time ministry. You don't have to have a title. <laughs> you don't have to have a position. You are in the Lord's army, and you're called to be a proclamator of the gospel no matter where you go. You're in the ministry. And so that's important as we gather together because, as you'll see here, as Paul begins to speak about this issue that was going on in this church that was potentially going to make this church incredibly unhealthy, he starts to talk to the members of the church, and he says, hey, you guys need to get involved, and you need to help deal with the situation. Notice he's not addressing the leaders. He's addressing the body. And I think that's some of the unhealthiness that's gone on in the church is, is, is people have propped up man and made all the responsibilities on one man or on a, a team of leadership or whatever the case might be. Churches are ran differently, but... But here's what I would say to you is that as a member of the body of Christ, regardless if you're a member of a church or whatever, you're a member of the church if you're in Christ, and you are a minister of the gospel. And so when you come together, no matter where you go, you have a ministry to fulfill. God has something he wants to do through you. Like he wants to use you in somebody else's life. You walk in and you see somebody downtrodden over there, and the Holy Spirit says, hey, why don't you go speak to that someone? Let me go get the pastor. No, you do it. You do it. You go up to that person and say, hey, what's going on with you? Hey, can I pray? That, that's part of being a part of a body. We're a family. And so when you see a family member down, you want to go over there and say, hey, family member, what's going on? Can I pray for you? And, uh, you know, there, there's nothing better than, uh, you know, for, for me to walk out there and to see people praying for one another. Dude, that is so awesome. Because that means they get it. Like, it, like it's not 
just, uh, you know, you don't have to come forward and pray with an elder. You don't have to pray with me. You can pray with each other because you have as much of the Holy Spirit as I do, right? And so you don't need a special prayer. Now, the Bible does say, hey, if, if you're sick or whatever, call the elders and you can pray for them. If there's in the scripture, we want to do it. But I'm just saying you have the Holy Spirit, man. If you're, if you're a minister of the gospel, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Dude, minister, do it. You know, be what you're called to be. Paul is encouraging this body to be a healthy body because there's a serious issue in this church, and it's involving unity. And, and so, you know, there's, there's really three marks that I want to uh, unveil through these, through these verses here today of what it looks like to be a healthy church or, again, what it looks like to be a healthy Christian. And, again, this is not an exhaustive teaching on this subject. This is not a, a topical teaching on this subject. I could give you 100 reasons, but out of the Bible, but there's three contained in these uh, four verses, or what, how many, three verses that I want to share with you today. First, if you're taking notes, a healthy church chooses, listen, Jesus over self. Chooses Jesus over self. So it, Paul says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Sintaish to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here we're coming to the end of this letter. And Paul brings up what I believe to be the elephant in the room, right? So they're probably wondering, like, is he going to really say anything about this? Like, this is a serious issue. It's obviously big enough that he's addressing it. And this is in the scriptures forever, by the way. Like, thank God that your, you know, the scriptures are contained and they're, they can't add to them because, listen, your story may be in there and you, people would be reading about you, man. So people are reading about these two ladies and about the issue that they have. So Paul brings it up specifically now. He made mention of it in chapter 2 in the very beginning, uh, verses 1 through 4. He, he made mention of the issue and he said, listen, you got to be, you got to be of the same mind. You have to be of the same spirit and all this kind of stuff. He's referring to the situation, but now... He pulls the veil off, and he says, listen, I'm just going to address it directly. Here's the issue. Uh, you know, the issue is that there are two what seem to be, they seem to be prominent ladies in this fellowship. Um, they were at odds with one another. You know, and, and so we don't know a whole bunch about them. Like, there's not a lot of detail about who they are, but they are probably founding members of the church. They are probably, remember when, Paul came into Philippi the first time, Acts chapter 16, you can read it later, but when he comes into the town and uh, there, was, it wasn't, uh, there wasn't enough believing males, there had to be 20, uh, 20 males to have a synagogue in a city, there obviously wasn't 20, you know, believing Jews in that city, and so Paul didn't have a synagogue to go to, so he did the next best thing, he went down by the river to pray, 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 you know the song, and so he went down there, right, and he finds a prayer meeting going on, he's like, whoa. Of course, there's only ladies there. <laughs> Go figure. But he, he finds a woman's prayer meeting going on, and he says, hey, what an opportunity. So he starts to share the gospel. And there's, uh, one, there's a prominent lady there that, is, you know, gets saved, and, and there's others, but Paul specifically calls her out. But there were other ladies there praying. Perhaps these two ladies were part of that group. Perhaps they were part of that prayer meeting, and they heard the gospel, and they received it and all. What we know is that Paul goes on to tell us that these women had labored by his side. Like, they weren't just people that he, casu that he had no idea who they were. He just heard the, 
them by name. No, he knew them. Like, they were people that he labored with, with the gospel in this city. Um, he also mentioned a guy named Clement. We don't know much about him either. Um, we know their names. That's it. That's all we need to know. But, but the reality is, is he's saying these people were laborers together, but now they're at odds with one another. What in the world? So what does Paul do? He calls on the body. He calls on the body of Christ, and he says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Help these women. You, calling you out specifically, you help these women. You get involved in the situation because it's dividing the church. It's dividing the body of Christ. Paul's exhorting this church to help these women. Listen, this, this issue was, was, was affecting the entire church. People were probably called to pick sides. You ever been in a church split like that before? That is ridiculous. It's unbiblical for us to, to, to get to a point, and, and particularly it happens, listen, when these things happen, they're generally not about biblical things because people choose self over Jesus. It becomes more about preference than it, do, than it becomes about unity. So I'm going to choose whatever I think is better than, than being unified in the body of Christ. It's a sad situation that's going on here. And listen, when we assemble together as God's people, we're called to be unified. We're called to, to operate with one heart. We're, we're, we're called to be seasoned with grace. We're called to support one another, to hold each other accountable, to care for one another. This should be a safe place, right? Where we, we can commune and share and be restored. A place where we can share others' burdens, not a place where we pick side and form cliques. Listen, if, if, if that's what happens, then um, this becomes nothing more than a social club. It becomes nothing more than what the world has to offer. And we, we, we know that it's much more than that. God desires for us to be unified in all that we do. What should the church look like? Here's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. He said, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Does that sound like there's any room for, for just acting like stuff's not happening? Like you should not address anything? Like you're like, well, that's just none of my business. That's, that's what happens a lot of times. Oh, I don't want to get involved in that. Well, let me go tell somebody else about it. That's called gossip. If you know about it, it's because God wants you to do something about it, right? So Paul is saying, man, in, encourage your brothers. Admonish the idle. You know, encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repairs evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. That's what a gathering is supposed to look like. That sounds awesome. You know, that sounds like that's what Jesus that's what it's like to be around Jesus, to be like that. There was just a grace-filled, you know, mercy-filled uh, place where God wouldn't allow me to get away with something, but he would, he would speak to me in love, the truth in love, right? I mean, that's what the gathering's supposed to look like. Paul is speaking to the entire church here. Now, notice the word that he uses here, I urge you, or or. He uses that word in 1 Thessalonians 5, but it's the same exact word 
that he's using in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, the word entreat. That's what my version says. Your, your version might say something. The, the Greek word for that is parakaleo, and it means to ask for something earnestly with propriety, to plead for, to earnestly request, to call alongside. So in other words, this is not a passive ask by Paul. He's not pass passively asking for this. This is more of a command. He's saying, listen, I plead with you. I'm, I'm, I'm begging you to do this. Why? Because it's important to the health of the body. This is not about you. And this is not about me. This is about us. That's what he's saying. And he's, notice that he doesn't, he's not like, well, let's just get to the bottom of the problem, right? I mean, let's really dig in and find out who did what so we can figure out who was right and who was wrong. None of that. What he says is say, I just want you two to agree in the Lord. What that tells me first and foremost is this issue has nothing to do with biblical, you know, some biblical issue where there's a sin or there's something that has been done or, you know, that is a violation of the scriptures. Otherwise, he would have addressed it specifically. He does that in the scripture, right? So this tells me that this is a preference issue. This is something that these two ladies just from a preferential standpoint, couldn't agree on, and so they divided the entire church over their preferences. Believe it or not, this happens still, folks. People divide over, you know, and as it's been said, you know, the color of the carpet. Praise God. That's why we don't have carpet. We just take that one right out of the situation. We don't, we don't have a bunch of decorations around here because we're not going to, that's not what it's about. Listen, this is, this is simply a building for us to come and gather and to, to love on each other, to minister to one another, and to let the Holy Spirit do his work in us. And, but there are people that divide over preference all the time. And uh, so Paul, Paul doesn't care about what the issue is. He's saying, listen, I want you to choose Jesus over yourself. I want you to choose Jesus over yourself. Um, he's asking them to agree in the Lord. The, the phrase literally means to be of the same mind. It's the same thing he said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where he said, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus also. It's the same idea. He's just saying, be of the same mind. Agree in the Lord. Let the Lord bring unity in the situation, not your preferences. And so he, he, he wants this church to have a mind that chooses Jesus over self. And, 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 and if we do that as a body, folks, if we, if we truly choose Jesus over our preferences, we will have very little problems, very little problems. Do you know, I, I hear a lot of different problems from a lot of different people. And, uh, you know, so in, in counseling, you know, you, you, don't, you don't spend a whole bunch of time trying to tell people who's right and wrong. What you do is say, what does the Bible say? You know, as a counselor, all I care about is what does the Bible say? Do that. When you start doing that, then we can talk more. We don't want to just have continual conversations about what he did or what she did or whatever the case might be. It's just like, here's what the Bible says. Here's what a husband's supposed to do. Here's what a wife's supposed to do. Give me a call when you're doing that. That's really biblical counseling, right? There's really no conversation. If you're not willing to do what the Bible says, then we have no, there, there's no, there's no way that we can really come together because ultimately the, the Bible is the unifier. It was what brings us together. If we'll just do that, we will not divide, folks. If we're willing to just do what, what Jesus says, you know, then we will, um, we will not divide. And I, I, see, I see this in the body all the time 
where not this body, but I see this in the body of Christ all the time where people are dividing over preference issues. I just don't like this about it. I don't like that about it and this and that. Listen, has God called you to that church? Yes or no? If he's not called you to that church, then what are you doing there? You know, he's called you. I, I'm a firm believer God has a calling upon people to be a part of a body. And because I believe that when God calls a body together, there are spiritual gifts that are made available to that body. And so God doesn't need a, a body full of hands, right? He wants a body that has hands and feet and eyes and ears and, and a mouth and all of that. So, so what I'm saying is you have a spiritual gift. And God has put that in you so that you could be a blessing to a body, to a, to a gathering of people. And so when God calls you to a church, you don't just randomly, you know, it, it's, it's the Holy Spirit, believe it or not. The Holy Spirit draws you to a church, and then you become part of that body because you have something to contribute to that body, right? And when, when the body's working in unity together and, and stuff, it looks a whole lot like Jesus and, and because we're his body. And so, you know, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I, I lost my train of thought. But, but we, we are called to be unified in the body of Christ. And are we, are we committing to choosing Jesus over self? That's the question. If we are, then we are going to be incredibly unified. Listen, I want to tell you today, I'm committed to that. I'm committed to, uh, you know, choosing Jesus over myself. Uh, this is not my church. A lot of people, you know, address, hey, you're the pastor. Well, that's your church. No, no, this ain't my church. This ain't my church. This isn't your church. This is his church. And you, we all get to be a part of it, and it's awesome. And, and, and so, you know, but this is his church. And so, you know, it, he, you may have a role in this church, but, but you're under the, the headship of Christ. And so, you know, I, I'm just going to need a verbal yes from everybody here if, if that's your, I'm just kidding, but <laughs> we're not on an airplane, but, uh, so Paul's asking Euodia and Sintai to, 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 and the entire body in Philippi to choose Jesus over self. That's the first point. If you want to be a healthy church, you have to choose Jesus over self. Secondly, you must choose joy over depression. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul brings up once again this concept of exhortation, this exhortation to rejoice. And the reason for that is because we need to be reminded you need to be reminded this morning. I need to be reminded this morning. Oh, yeah, I can rejoice. I really can rejoice because God has my back. If God has your back, listen, if God is for you, then what? Who can be against you? He has your back. You can rejoice in every situation. It, listen, and, and rejoicing does not mean absence of sorrow, folks. You want to know who the most sorrowful person in the world was? Jesus. The Bible calls him, in, in Isaiah chapter 53, a man of sorrows. Why was he a man of sorrows? Because I believe that Jesus walked down the street and he felt the pain of every single person that he passed. I believe he could see through the facade that people paint of everything's okay, I'm all right, but he could see the pain in their heart. He could see the desperation. He could see the, them stuck in their chains, right? He could... He could see these kinds of things, and therefore he was a man of sorrows. And yet, Jesus is the greatest display of joy that you will ever see on earth. He did it perfectly. He was a man of sorrows, but yet he rejoiced always. He always rejoiced because he understood that his Father is in control. Right? 
we can too. We can know that God is in control and therefore we can rejoice. We can choose joy over depression. How, 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 I'm not talking about clinical depression, by the way. I'm talking about circumstantial depression. I'm talking about you find yourself in a situation where, you know, it's hard. Life is sucking, right, at about that time, and you're just like, man, I'm so depressed. My life sucks, you know, but it, because it's hard. But, but here's the thing is, you're looking at the wrong thing. You, you have your eyes on the waves, as, Peter, as Jesus said to Peter. You got to get your eyes on the waves. You got to get your eyes on Jesus. When you get your eyes on Jesus, all of a sudden you're restored. You have a, a heart full of joy because you, you know that he's in the boat with you. You know that he can calm the storm. You know that he can give you peace that surpasses all understanding. You know that he can give you what you need to get through whatever it is that you're going through. But you have to get your eyes off of the waves, and you have to get your eyes on Jesus. Paul says, listen, I choose, I choose joy, regardless of my circumstances. The dude's in prison. He's in, people have been trying to kill him. Like from day one, he, he, he's, been, he's been, you know, attempted murder, assassination multiple, multiple times, more times than you can count. He was left for dead once. You know, he, he, he went to his, um, his countrymen, who Paul in Romans chapter 9, by the way, would say, I would give my own life for these people, right? He goes to his countrymen. He goes to Jerusalem, and he's just there trying to represent Jesus, and he's trying to follow what he's supposed to do. He takes a Nazarite vow. He does all this stuff to try and please these people, and then they put him in prison, and they want to kill him. So they have to escort Paul out of, out of there. The Romans take him, and he ends up finding himself in Rome. Many assassination attempts on the way, shipwrecked, and all of this stuff. And yet, he says, listen, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. This is a dude that's speaking from experience. This is somebody who can tell you how to do this because he's done it. And it's not in his own power. It's because he has chosen to get his eyes off the circumstances and get his eyes on Jesus. It's all a matter of looking if you're looking within for joy, folks, you'll never find it. But if you look upward and you get your eyes fixed on Jesus, that's where you will find your joy. He is our anchor, our hope. He is our refuge when we're weak. He is our peace in the midst of chaos. When we live in Jesus, when we cast our cares upon Jesus, when we trust Jesus with our pain and turmoil, then and only then can we rejoice can only happen when you're trusting him, man. So you want to rejoice? You're commanded to rejoice? You're, you you want to have more joy in your life? You have to, you have to um, get your eyes on the Lord. Get your eyes on the Lord. You have to choose joy over depression. Let me give you some practical ways to do this. Very practical ways to do this, uh, you know, and <laughs> I speak from experience. So here, here's, here's how this works. This is for how it works in my life. But the first thing that you can do that will help you choose joy over depression is you can remember what God has done in your life. There is a testimony that you have. And uh, you can remember the various different trials that God has taken you through, that he has, you've survived through, that maybe you've even thrived through, that God, you've, see, you've been able to see, you know, kind of God's hand work in your life and how he's used the difficult, difficult circumstance to shape you and make you more like Jesus. And so you look, you look backward and you say, Lord, what have you done? 
I know for me when I do that, I find myself being encouraged. I find, that, I find it produce a thankfulness in my heart, but also it produces joy. I mean, it produces hope in me, knowing that what he has done, he will continue to do because the word of God says that, um, that he who has begun a good work in me will see it to completion. So I know that he's going to complete my, my path. So the first thing I do is look back. I look back on what he's done. Secondly, worship in song. Listen, put on your favorite Christian play track or whatever it is, your worship songs, you know, and just start to worship God. Start to sing to the Lord. Just start to get your focus off of your circumstances and get, go vertical. Get your eyes on Jesus. Put on, music is incredible. I mean, it can, it can sway us in a negative way and it can sway us in a positive way. God put it in our heart to worship. And when we worship the right thing, all of a sudden we're welled up with hope. You know, the, the circumstances don't look so bleak. Anybody know what that feels like? I mean, you, you just start to worship God and you're like, dang. You, it's amazing what 30 to 45 minutes of just a little bit of worship will do in your heart. It will completely and totally transform your outlook. One more thing. One more thing. It's obvious, but I have to say it. Get in his word. Get a concordance out. Look up the circumstance that you're going through. Find the, 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 the topic that it's speaking about. Oh, I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of Bibles have it in the back of their, you know, in the back of the book there. You can look up a topic. You can look up something, and then you look up a passage, and, and you just start to meditate on that passage, and you receive that passage for yourself. You know, Lord, what do you say about this? What do you say about being depressed? What do you say? How can I, um, you know, apply this into my life? God's word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It can speak right into your life and right in the moment. So get in God's word. Let his spirit go to town. Listen, he will encourage you. And, and you might be encouraged by a rebuke. Who knows? We, we're, we're, we're weird people. We're encouraged by different things. But, but get in his word. Get on YouTube. Get on Google. Type in the topic that, you know, sermon. And just type sermon after it and listen to a sermon. Let God's word soothe your soul. If you do these three things, man, if you do one of these three things, uh, maybe there's, there's plenty of more things you could do, but these are three things that, that work in my life, you know, and how, how they totally change my outlook on whatever it is that I find myself going through. There's hope, and all we have to do is get our, get our eyes on Jesus, and we will see the hope, amen? So not only if we want to be healthy do we have to choose Jesus over self and have to choose joy over depression, but we also have to choose graciousness over condemnation. Look at, look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is the final sign of a healthy church where someone is choosing to pour out grace rather than condemnation. As you know, you can be 100% theologically right in whatever scripture that you're quoting, but you can be 100% wrong in the attitude in which you quote it. Right? The Pharisees are famous for this. They, they love to condemn people. They use the scriptures against people. They use them as a sword to condemn rather as a sword to heal. And there's many Christians out there that are like that in the same way. They, they want to use the scriptures for the purpose of condemnation rather than the purpose of conviction under repentance. They want to slay people with it. Listen, the scriptures, they do slay, but they heal. They do cut down so that it can build back up. Like the word of God is, is 
two-edged. It can cut and heal at the same time. It's amazing. It's full of grace and mercy. As you read the Bible, you will find letter after letter, word after word, just full of God's grace and mercy being poured out upon you. He does not want to condemn you. One of the most famous passages in the Bible, John 3.16 and verse 17, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to this. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent his Son so that you don't have to be condemned. He doesn't want to condemn people, and yet there are incredibly religious people that condemn people. They use God's word for that purpose. When Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, that's what he's saying. He's, he's helping us understand that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. Let your reasonableness, let, that, that word reasonableness is a difficult word to translate, but um, John MacArthur, he, he, he defined it like this. It's sweet reasonableness. It is generosity. It is goodwill. It is friendliness. It is um, charity towards faults of others, mercy towards the failure of others, indulgence of the failures of others, leniency, big-heartedness, moderation, forbearance, and gentleness are all some attempts to capture the rich meaning of this word. Perhaps the best corresponding English word is graciousness is graciousness, to be gracious with one another. That word grace means getting what you don't deserve, to be gracious with each other. Listen, Jesus was the greatest example of grace that we could ever have. Obviously, when he was hanging on the cross, he was pouring out grace when he was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But, but also, there's a very distinct account in the Bible where this, this adulterous woman is cast before Jesus, half probably naked, maybe half clothed or whatever, been caught right in the act. And these Jewish men had set Jesus up. They set her up. They wanted to, they wanted to condemn Jesus, so they're going to condemn her, and they're going to bring him, her before him and make him call out her condemnation or con condemn himself in the midst of this judgment. And so he, he's presented with this situation of all these religious people around him. You have Jesus, and then you have this woman who was just caught in adultery, sleeping with a guy that wasn't her husband. The account is found in John chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. Let me read it. The, the, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her at it in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might, may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning by the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and, now, and, and from now on, sin no more.
You see, the, the scribes and Pharisees wanted Jesus to condemn her to death because that's what the law said. Jesus takes this trial to a different level by addressing every heart there. He said, yeah, the law does say that. But why don't one of you cast the first stone? Why don't you who are without sin cast the first stone? What is he doing? Here's what he's not doing. He's not accepting her sin. He's not saying what she did was right. He's not being lenient on the fact that she sinned. But what he is saying is, be careful on how you judge. He actually kind of said it like this in Matthew 7, verse 1. He said, judge not lest you be judged, right? That's used against you all the time, isn't it, as a Christian? It doesn't mean that you don't call out wrong, but, it, but it's, it's how you do it and why you do it. Jesus saw the sinfulness of their hearts in the midst of this moment. They weren't there trying to protect the law. They weren't there trying to uphold God's law. They were trying to condemn Jesus, and he knew that. Their heart was far, far more sinful. You want to talk about an adulterous heart. These men, their, their hearts were totally sold out to themselves, not to the Lord. And Jesus calls them out on it. And he says, man, if, you know, he, 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 he bends down on the ground. Who knows what he's doing? Maybe he's writing people's names and their sins along with it. Who knows? But what we know is they just start going one by one, oldest to youngest. They just start dropping their stones and walking away. What powerful testimony of what grace looks like. We're all recipients of grace, folks, every single one of us. So we, 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 we need to be really, really careful about how we deal with other people's sin, that we're not trying to devour them, trying to cause condemnation, cast them down into condemnation. Jesus says to this woman, he said, hey, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and, now sin on, go, go and from now on, sin no more. Was she condemnable? Yes. Why didn't Jesus condemn her? Was he accepting or tolerant of his sin? He wasn't downplaying the seriousness of it. He didn't condemn her because obviously in this moment, she turned to him in some way. He's a discerner. He knows a person's heart. And he knew in that moment where her heart was. And he told her, listen, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He knew in her heart what was going on there. You know, you don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. Be careful. Be careful about how you address things. That, that doesn't mean that we don't. But how we do it and why we do it is super important. Paul is telling us that we are to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. We need to, we, we need to let our graciousness be known to everyone. Not in, the, in terms of us singing, we are the world, you know, that, or putting, you know, coexist stickers on our bumpers and stuff like that. That's not what he means. He means be gracious to people. Remember where you once were and be gracious with people. Be patient with people. Love people where they are and speak truth into their life. If you really do love them, then you're going to speak to them. And by the way, the Bible says real clearly, and when you find them in sin, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness. Like, restore him with gentleness. Don't come in and, as a wrecking ball saying, man, you really blew it. 
I don't know how God's going to forgive you for this and all of that. No. You tell him, listen, repent, turn away from your sin, and go and sin no more. That's what Jesus said. Say the same thing. Do the same thing. Paul tells us let the reason why we need to let our gentleness be known to everyone is because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. That means we should be working double time, folks, to disperse his grace to all those around. The Lord is at hand. Paul said it like this in Colossians 3, 12, and 14. Put on then uh, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put these uh, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Are you a healthy Christian? Are you a healthy church? Do you bear the marks that were displayed in this passage today? Do you choose Jesus over self? Do you choose joy over depression? Do you choose graciousness over condemnation? If so, then praise the Lord. Keep doing what you're doing. Just keep being who you're, who you're being. Continue to allow the Lord to, to work in your life. If not, there is hope today. You can turn to the Lord. You can say, Lord, I need help in this area in my life. I need you to help me to, you know, choose Jesus over myself. I'm so driven by my preferences. Will you change my heart in this area? Or will you, Lord, help me to get my eyes off the circumstances that I'm going through that I can have joy and not allow, allow the circumstances to put me into a, a, a darkness, Lord. Help me with this area in my life. Or, you know, maybe it's a matter of being, Lord, I, I, I love you so much, and yet I have a hard time when I see things going on in the world to, to represent you in the right way. It just makes me so mad, and I just want to, you know, go off on people. Will you help me have a gracious heart? Will you put compassion in me to help me remember who I once was? Listen, the Lord wants to do these things in your life because these are, these are signs, these are marks of what it means to be healthy. So if you're struggling in these things, ask the Lord to help you with them, and he will. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for just allowing us the privilege it is, Lord, to, to come here and to be able to hear um, what, 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 it is, what it looks like to be healthy in your body. And I ask you, Father, to just as your spirit moves in these last moments, Lord, that you would just put it in our hearts to respond to you. We're not just here to sing, sing the last song and go home, Lord. You want to do something in our life. You want to speak into our life. And so we want to allow room for that this morning, Lord. So will you, by your spirit right now, just quicken us to whatever it is that we need and speak into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.